This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. A creative approach to surviving a furlough. Welcome to episode 89. Today I'm joined with Chris Pizzala. Chris became involved with aviation during high school, obtaining a commercial pilot certificate at the age of 18. He studied aeronautical science at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University while working on his flight instructor, as, excuse me, as a flight instructor. After college, he worked for a large regional airline. His flying experience includes 5,500 hours in airplanes and over 1,300 hours as an instructor. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Carl, thanks for having me. And uh, Chris has a really unique story about surviving a furlough, but before we get started there, just uh, a quick announcements. Uh, we have a few. Uh, number one, we used to have uh, you register to be able to see all those different free scholarships that are out there. That's all done. We made it real simple. Uh, I remember I always used to say, hey, you got to go in, you have to register, no more. All that stuff's free. The first video in every series is free. The first uh, part of each book is free, the first chapter. So go to the membership options page. You'll see in there the stuff that's free. And uh, for, the, for those of you that are interested, it's $10 for a monthly membership. You can pay in advance for a year. And that gets you a couple things. It gets you the Aerospace Scholarships Guide. So if you're just looking for the Scholarships Guide, you pay the $10. You get one month of free membership plus the guide. We throw in the guide and one month free membership. So I really highly recommend you go out there and check that out. The scholarships guide is great and uh, it's really coming together and moving forward. We're really excited about that. So that's uh, that's a, the announcement. No need to register, but today my guest Chris, Chris actually uh, Chris and I go go back a little bit. We he's helped me with some safety seminars uh, with the FAA and has uh, been a lecturer for those seminars and has done some really cool stuff with holding patterns, but before we get ahead of ourselves, let's talk a little bit about Chris's background. Chris, uh, you really do love aviation, don't you? Uh, absolutely, Carl. Um, I fell in love with airplanes as a little kid. I remember being at the Memphis airport. My mother took me up to the window and said, look at the airplanes. And I think she was just trying to distract me so I wouldn't bother her. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, she ended up paying for that mistake uh, many years later when I said, I want flying lessons. Oh, wow. Uh, but uh, I grew up uh, loving airplanes, um, did model airplanes before. Uh, moving on to the real ones, uh, so that was really, uh, really kind of a nice introduction to aircraft. And the model airplanes, I find, is something that that is key amongst all of us that are into aviation. It's models and books and and movies about aviation. We all get excited by just being around those really cool looking things that fly. And it's just it still for me, and I know for you, it, it still amazes me that they actually go up in the air. Uh, it was amazing to me, especially being you know 12 years old. I think everyone was pretty amazed I'm out there flying this. And uh, that was back before we had the, the, the new ones now, which were really advanced. Back then, you just had the little box, and you hit the button, and uh, it would fly, and once in a while, it didn't fly. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually crashed a few, and, uh, and, and model rockets, of course, I've crashed a few of those, too, and they didn't quite come down where I wanted them. They wound up in the trees. Uh, I've got a few of those that never came back, too. <laughs> So I think, you know, it, it's interesting. I know that you listening can relate. It's, it starts a lot of times with the model airplanes, model rockets, et cetera. But then we move on and we decide that this is a really cool thing to do and we want to do it for a living. How did you get from this point where you're a child thinking, God, that's pretty cool, to the point of actually getting to a regional airline? Well, I think at some point, in probably my early teens, I realized 
that this is really what I want to do every day. And I thought, well, if I have a job, let's have one I like. So I started pestering my parents about age 14. And um, of course, you know, they didn't really want to put up for a 14-year-old to do flying lessons. So, <laughs> uh, so they said, let's wait a few years. So we, we waited until I was uh, 15 and then said, okay, we can do a flying lesson, you know, every two weeks. And then when we get closer to 16, we'll start working up towards that solo. And so, you know, each step along the way, I'm just kind of pushing, pushing, let's do more flying, let's do more flying. Got my license on my 17th birthday, uh, rolled straight into instrument and commercial. And um, it really wasn't long after that before I was in college. Now, just to, to remind the folks that are listening, uh, you could get your student pilot certificate at 16, and what you did, and you yeah. can solo at 16, right? Uh, that's correct. I actually soloed on the 16th birthday 16th first. birthday. That is so cool. And uh, commercial check around the 18th, so I just really hit wow. all the marks, and even up to ATP at age 23, did that one on the, wow. on the date as well. So those are, all, those are all the dates. 16 for your student, 17 for your private, 18 for your commercial, ATP at 23. Yep. Those are the exact dates for it. So it, you're a good example uh, for the FAA to use as to when, when to get your certificates. Although now they have the restricted ATP, the, the age isn't quite as, as important now. Uh, but they didn't have that when you got to the regionals. No, that's a fairly new thing. Uh, when I went to the regionals, you just needed a commercial pilot license and 250 hours. I think most people were getting hired around 600, 800 to be competitive. Right, right. And that's, uh, it seems low to some people, but I think too, that's, that's quite a, I think that's enough hours, you know, for a regional. Yeah, I think so, because you're going to go through all of the airlines training as well, and it's just, it's so different uh, from the general aviation that it's not really an issue that, you know, a few hundred hours here and there, not a big issue. And, and what's interesting about the regionals, I've noticed, as opposed to the majors, the regionals spend a lot of time training, uh, more so than the majors. The majors expect you to be there ready to fly a jet at high, high air speeds. You have to think at 500 miles an hour, whereas at the regionals, they're going to walk you through. Your training process is a lot longer. That's what I found. It's a longer process, and it's a little bit gentler process. We have a lot of folks coming in. This is their first jet. Uh, this is their first airline job. So it's really sort of a new environment, and they, and they do a great job. So you wound up getting your ATP, but you fl flight instructed, right? That's how you were able to get the hours? Um, I actually um, had the job at the airline for two years before I uh, did the ATP. Um, How's that? Well, um, you know, a few years back, I was hired in 2007. You didn't need an ATP to be hired at an airline at that time. Uh, so I was working for the airline building hours, and I wanted to go ahead and put my application out to some other larger airlines. And uh, a lot of them were asking for an ATP, or they said it was recommended. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to go out and get it myself. And so I went ahead and I took the written test. And I called up the examiner and I said, how much for a check ride? And he gave me a price. And I said, how much is it if I do the single and the multi-land together? And he gave me a slightly higher price. And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> Might as well get the single engine ATP while we're at it, right? Wow, that's a, that's a lot of work. You jump into one and then to the next. It is, and we, we pulled out both airplanes the morning of the check ride. It was, I think, 6 or 7 in the morning. We pulled both planes out and, and did one and then hopped into the other. Wow, and that's one way of banging it out. That's, that's terrific. Now, what's interesting, you got hired into this regional airline after getting your hours, flight instructing, mm -hmm. et cetera, and building hours. Um, you've, but, and you like instructing, right? You, you like teaching? Um, I really enjoy instructing. As a matter of fact, I'll be instructing uh, this weekend coming up. Oh, some, cool. Some glider what, flying. Glider flying. So you're a glider instructor. Uh, yes. When I was in college, I joined a glider club and um, went ahead and got my commercial glider rating with them, followed that up with the glider instructor, started teaching. 
Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, you just don't spend a lot of time teaching go-arounds with the glider. No, there are. I don't think there's too many of those. Unless you have a lot of energy, then you can do a go-around. Yeah, every once in a while, I've seen someone do one, but uh, I've never done one. Yeah, I've only seen those at air shows. <laughs> They're pretty cool. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting because you're really into flying. You, know, you fly gliders, you fly airplanes, tail draggers too, I assume. And uh, yep, about 140, 150 hours tail dragger, I think. Good, good. i got to get my tailwheel endorsement. I just realized I don't have one in my logbook. You don't? We're going to work on no, that. No, no. We definitely need to do that. It's uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, a very, very much a challenge i highly recommend it to anybody even if you're going to the airlines a lot of people tell me well you don't need that when you fly at the airlines that's not true when you're flaring no matter what you're using your rudder no matter what size the airplane is and what type of airplane it is you got to keep that airplane going straight down the runway it really is and, and people know the difference i didn't think anyone would know the difference and i remember i was probably a month or two in my first job flying a uh, turboprop big turboprop and i came around a corner and the captain looks and goes you fly tailwheel don't you I said, yes, how do you know? He goes, because you know how to use the rudder. Exactly, exactly. I think that's a great point. That's a wonderful point. Well, let's back up here. Now, how did you get into the airline? What did you do? You, you put all these applications out <laughs> on the Internet? I mean, how did you, um, you get there? It was, it was a semi-accident. It was a lot of fun. Um, I said I wanted to go to somebody who had a little bit of international exposure, and this particular company did a lot of Caribbean flying. So I thought, okay, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so they were going to come on campus and do these on-campus job interviews. And the school sent out an email saying, hey, you don't have the hours, but go ahead and uh, put out, fill out their application so they have your info. And I thought, okay, that's great. So I filled out the application online, figure, you know, I'll meet with them in a few weeks. Get an email the next morning. It says, please call us at the headquarters. Okay. So I call up the headquarters, and I'm on the phone with them for about a minute, and the line cuts out. And of course, oh, no. you know, <laughs> I'm 20 years old. I'm kind of freaked out now. I'm like, this is, this is the company I want to work for, and they just hung up on me. <laughs> and so I waited about a minute. I called them back. Turns out it was an accident. And they said, yeah, yeah, we want you to do the interview. I said, that's great. I'm on campus. They said, no, we want you to come to headquarters and do the full interview now. Don't mess with the on-campus stuff. Wow. I said, well, that's pretty good. And I, they gave me a list of dates, and none of them worked. And I said, well, i got to graduate. <laughs> and they said, okay, when do you want to come out? And I gave them a date, early May 2007. And they said, sure. You know, they got me a plane ticket, and uh, so after graduation, I went to my own party for one hour, and I hopped the flight uh, to the headquarters to do the interview. Interesting. And that interview process, maybe you could just fill us in a little bit about that process. So was it stressful? What did you have to do during it? Um, you know, every airline's a little bit different. Uh, this one, I came in the night before, stayed at a hotel, and um, the first restaurant I went to for dinner uh, that night before wouldn't let me in because I wasn't 21. Yeah, the restaurant that I wanted to eat dinner at had a 21 age limit. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a local law in that area. And so I thought, okay, well, went to another restaurant. You know, I was 20 years old at the time. Next morning, I come down to the van. I'm on the list. I'm going to go to this van, and it's going to take me to the interview. That's great. And except for one thing, the van's full. I'm the last person. I'm there with my luggage. The van is full. And there's one too many people. And the manager comes out and finally figures out somebody's not supposed to be on this van. And they have a bit of a squabble, and they finally pull this person off <laughs> and, and, and get her where she actually needed to be going, which was the airport. And so, uh, fortunately, I got in the van, and we showed up on time uh, to the interview. And of course, you know, we're all there in our suits. And, and it's kind of like The Apprentice. They said, bring your luggage, because if you don't pass the interview, we're going to go ahead and send you home. That's a great analogy. You know, I never thought of it that way. You're right. It's exactly what they do. Is uh, you you bring your your luggage in, and then if it's halfway through the day, they might tell you to go home, and I'm sure that's happened. Yeah, exactly. They don't uh, they don't feel any need to take you back to the hotel. They just figure if it doesn't work out, we'll you know we'll get you going on to your 
get your uh, way back home. So anyways, um, unfortunately one person did not pass. There was a logbook issue, um, something involving an instrument proficiency check. So it's really important that your logbook not only be filled out, but be something someone can understand. Uh, on my logbook, I had a few places where a column um, ended for a couple pages and then restarted. And I always reference back to the last page where it existed or the page where the time was logged. So somebody reading it could go, oh, okay, this appears for some reason, and then there's a note here, and then flip to the correct page. Figure out why that's there. So they really do audit your logbooks at they the airlines. They really did. Yeah, and they go through that. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of airlines, what they'll do is they'll take your logbooks, and you can go and do something else, like another interview, another process within the interview. You may not get your logbooks back for hours. And that's correct. I don't remember if they took our logbooks, but they definitely had a lot of questions. Uh, they wanted the check rides marked in advance so that they could flip right to them. Uh, so they were very interested. And you know, big things they're looking for, they can't read every entry. So they're looking to make sure it's clean, do the entries add up correctly. That's really what they're looking for. And so if, you know, if you've got a logbook that's kind of messy, you might want to either you know, replace it with a new one or at least try to clean it up a little bit and make it, it so they can understand it. You know, I didn't mean to have this as an interview just about how to, how to get on with an airline, but I hope you don't mind if we expand on that a little bit because I know the listeners want to hear this. Uh, and, and I think it's important because a lot of folks, they go into interviews and they have no idea what they're doing and they're scared. Uh, when you prepared for this interview, did you actually have any type of interview prep or did you go on the internet, find information? What did you do? Um, actually, what I did, which is one of the best things that ever happened to me, um, another uh, airline, a bigger airline, was doing internships over the summer and they wanted to interview people. And so I came to the interview. Again, you know, this was on campus. I came in a suit, I was ready to go, and I blew the interview. I blew it really badly <laughs> to the point that the interviewer was laughing. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but I learned from that. I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned was that, you know, I didn't know anything about the company I had applied to. I didn't know why I was there. And they could see that. And so when I went to the actual airline interview, the one that I ended up getting a job with, um, I did a lot of research. I looked into their financials. I looked into their structure. What is it that makes this company work? Uh, as well as um, talking to some of their pilots in advance and really getting some information. So it helps to do your homework, and it always helps to do an interview ahead of time with somebody that you're not worried about. If you don't get it, no problem. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, just a quick plug. I mean, we, we actually do interview prep here, Aviation Careers Podcast. You can actually go to our coaching uh, part of the website and uh, just click on the coaching tab. But I will say this. Everybody I've prepped for an interview has said the same thing. They felt so comfortable when they went into the interview. There, it, it was so much different than the day they met me. And I tell you, I had one guy who he was not doing very well. And finally turned it around and he said when he got to his interview he knocked it out of the park you really do need to, it's like anything else landings you need to practice interview skills you need to practice uh and as far as my background i had you know years in the consulting business where i did a lot of interviews of people and you could really tell right away who's prepared who's not if you come to the interview and you don't know about the company like you said and you don't know what business we're in or you don't know the values of the company or you don't know how much money they made it's always good to know those things know the stock price etc i'm not saying you have to do this but like with the one airline i got hired by i actually own their shares in their company so i actually showed up and I knew a lot about the company. So that's a big help because when you're a shareholder, 
you're part of that company already, and you want to actually learn more about that company. I don't tell everybody to do that, but you know you can follow it in other ways. You don't have to buy the shares, that's for sure. <laughs> so in in your ability in your ability to get on with this particular airline, let's talk about that specific airline. Did you go out and find information about that airline and that actual specific interview on the internet? Um, you know, the internet wasn't as big for that back then. This was 2007. So, um, you know, I looked for information about the company, sort of the structure of the finances. And then I, I had a contact of mine that put me in touch with one of their pilots. And interestingly, I called him up and I said, um, you don't go to Toledo, Ohio by any chance. And he goes, funny, you should ask. I'm standing there now. <laughs> and I wow. thought, yeah, this is, this is the company I want to work for. And, uh, you know, I really liked the people. Um, it was still a little bit of, I think, a culture shock just getting to an airline and, and doing the interview. But they were, they were very nice. They were very, um, very professional and, and just very friendly. And that really, really helped. Um, That's cool. And uh, so you would suggest doing interview prep. I mean, we have other would, folks on here that have done interview prep. I would. I think that would have helped um, as opposed to going into you know, the first you know, internship interview and having that sort of rough experience. I didn't have a mock interview. Right. Um, I've done them since then. Uh, with other uh, things I've applied for, but yes, that would have really helped. Yeah, and, and we've had a lot of those folks on this show that have done interview prep, and I think they're terrific. So make sure you go look at some of the past episodes and check out some of those people that do interview prep and, and get your resume ready and look at the background checks. Some people have things in their background they need to fix. You know, you're, you had an arrest at one point. You know, we need to talk about that. We need to come up with an answer to that question, that type of thing. I think that's very important to answer all the questions in your background, no matter what. Uh, well, and that's, and that's just it. It's, it's not just about what's in your background. It's about how you present it. Um, I had only one thing. I had a, a note of my driving record. Um, and actually, I can say this. I was in college. I had underglow lights in my car because that was uh, the cool thing back then. And I picked the wrong color and uh, got a ticket for it. Oh, no. And, uh, you know, that was on me. Um, there, there was definitely a law in the books. So, uh, you know, I went to the interview and I said, you know, I, you know, I made this mistake. And then I took the lights off my car, brown went away. And the interviewer goes, well, you know, those cops in Florida give out a lot of tickets. Man, everybody from Florida has tickets. He was waiting for me to bite. He was waiting for me to say the cop was at fault. Right. I didn't. I looked at him and said, it was my fault. I, took him, I paid the fine. I took him off the car. He looks back at me and goes, good answer. <laughs> That's great. Sometimes they do bait you a little bit in an interview. Hopefully, it's, uh, not too many times. Uh, but I uh, think that was the only one. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's cool. And, and now through this process, this is fascinating. So I don't, I, I, this is great that we can spend some time on this. Uh, so you went through this interview process. How did you find out that you got the job? Uh, well, actually, what they do is, is it, it's pretty much assumed that you're going to get the job with this company if they're going to bring you all the way out there. So they're just checking to make sure that they were right when they called you. And so the process was two days, ends with a medical. And after that, they give you a letter, and it's a conditional offer of employment. And it says, we're going to do one more background check, and we're going to have a few more people look at this. And if we call you next week, you're hired. And so I thought, that's pretty good. But I ran to a little bump along the way. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, this was sort of a funny one. I was at the interview, and there's a lot of paperwork. And they hand me the contract. I said, you know, please read and sign this. Okay. And I'm reading through it, you know, and duties, responsibilities. I certify that I'm 21 years old. Well, uh-oh. Uh, you're not. I'm 20 and a half. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie to them. I thought they knew that. So I go back to HR and I said, you know, I'm, I'm 20 and a half. Do we need to do anything here? And they didn't miss a beat. The, uh, the lady at the HR grabs the calendar, flips through it, and goes, oh, good. You're just under six months. We're going to make you an offer anyways, but you're going to have to wait six months to take it. 
that's an interesting point you just made because most background checks last six months uh, is something I found out because I actually had that issue when I applied. I had to reapply to many different airlines because I've been through four, and each time it's this background check that's only good for six months. One of the airlines did the background check, got the job, conditional letter, class date. Oh, sorry, we're going to have to wait another year. Had to do the background check again. So uh, make sure that your background is clean and also the fact that you can explain everything like you did in your background. I think that's very, very important to do that. Yeah, I, th I think so. And I was very fortunate to only have the one mark. I think for the younger folks, stay away from car troubles, um, yeah. speeding tickets, uh, violations. Um, those things will come up and you'll have to explain those on a uh, on an interview. And, you know, it's, it seems fine at the time to blame the police officer. But when you get to the interview, it's a lot harder to do that. Yeah, just to, that's true. You got you, you put the blame on yourself. And also, uh, even drunk driving, uh, those type of things, any controlled substance, we actually can you know, many different companies can help you in explain that, you know, why that happened. As long as you have a good explanation, you're over that, uh, you, you might get the job. And, uh, as long as you are, have a good report with the person that's interviewing you, you, you also might get the job, but, uh, but you really need to be prepared to explain that. The other thing too, that I found with background checks is that if you are a little bit older, sometimes it's tougher for them to go back. And also, if you're a flight instructor, which a lot of people listening are, they may have had a flight school that went out of business. And I've heard of that happening before. Uh, it's happened to me. So you really need to also find people in your background that can vouch for your being employed at the time. I had an issue when I first got on with the airlines because I worked for myself almost my whole life. And it was difficult to find somebody that could vouch for me. And finally, uh, we were going through the process and the interviewer said, you know, do you have somebody that worked for you that can vouch for you? I said, well, of course I do. So I went to an old, somebody who had actually worked for me, who I was their supervisor, that actually they allowed me to, to use that in my background check, which you can also use a clergyman or somebody from, somebody from, from your local community can actually vouch for you too. So there's many ways around that, which is really important. So you went through this interview process. Let's get back to that. And you got this job, and, uh, and you're now getting ready for training. Uh, did you get a specific training date, or did they just have someplace um, in the future? Well, I did because, uh, because of the age restriction, we knew it was going to be October. So um, I called them up about a month out, and I said, you know, I'm turning 21. When do you want me? They said, oh, yeah, we've got a date right after you turn 21. You know, come out here and see us in the headquarters. We'll send you the paperwork. Interesting. Let's go back on that 21 real quick. There, not everybody requires that. Uh, there's a lot of airlines that just require 18 years old to get hired. That, and, that's uh, correct. Uh, yeah. You know, at the time, uh, their, their requirement was 21. They've actually bumped it to 23 now. Right. Um, but there were other airlines who were hiring 18, and people were calling me every day going, why are you waiting six months? We've got, um, you know, other companies here will hire you right now at 18. And I said, nope, that's the job I want. I'm going to wait for it. Interesting. Interesting. So you got on with this airline. You started flying. You went through training. It was, it was a process that I'm sure was, was rather difficult. It always is. Uh, but it's a, it's a challenge. It's also fun, and it's interesting. Uh, and you flew a turboprop when you first got on with this airline, correct? Uh, that's correct. They, they actually gave me a choice between the, the, the small jet or the turboprop. And um, the deal was if I went to the turboprop, I could go jet later. If I went to the jet, there was no turboprop option. And I said, I want turboprop on my resume. This is, and also, it was the location I wanted to go to. So the pay was the same. And I thought, you know what? I'm not worried about it. Jets aren't going anywhere. Right. Let's go have some fun with the uh, turboprop down the islands. Yeah, that's cool. What type of turboprop, by the way? Uh, that was an ATR. ATR? So 70... It was a 72, so it's the bigger model. Cool. Yeah. And uh, it flies kind of like a Jeep. It's, it's, it's <laughs> honestly, it's a lot more fun to fly than, than the little jets. Uh, the, the jet's just a sports car on a highway, and after a week and a half of going, you know, the speed it goes, 
you get bored. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like the turbo props, and I, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to start there. Uh, it's also fun. You feel like a Ginsu chef when you're switching all those switches. That's that's for sure. <laughs> you know, it's like switch, 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 switch. Uh, so then you're on, you're doing this job, and you're in a job that you love, and you're flying, and you enjoyed it, I assume, the flying? Uh, yep, absolutely, especially yeah. the islands. Just beautiful. They are. They're gorgeous. I just flew over the islands last week, and I was like, oh, my God, I wish I was down there. Uh, but it is nice to be an air conditioner while you're doing that. Although bouncing around the islands, you're not in the air conditioning that much, no, are you? No, and those aircraft didn't have an APU, so we had the external oh. air cart. And when you get to peak summer, it does not keep up. Wow, wow. So we'd be baking the passengers until we could get an engine running uh, in order to air condition the plane. <laughs> <laughs> so now you got hired in the 0708 era, which was a really interesting time to get hired. Uh, yes, I, um, I actually went to training in late 07, started on the line about January of 08. But then something happened. Uh, that's correct. That was um, sort of at the peak of the hiring boom that was going on at that point in time. And um, not a year later, it was over. Yes. Uh, done job was done or the uh, or the, the actual hiring was done what, what uh, happened our airline had stopped hiring yeah and uh, some of our competitors including some of the ones that i've been encouraged to go to were actually furloughing um i was very fortunate i actually kept my job um through the the great financial uh, crisis and uh continued to work for them for about four and a half years uh, so i was very fortunate there wasn't a lot of movement um i went to the jet after about a year on the turboprop schedules were really good at first and then it started going downhill um, as we lost a few pilots and the, and the financial crisis continued. And so it took a few years for that to really uh, fully recover. And during this process, uh, the airline you were with, to mitigate furloughs, and uh, they were able to offer people leaves of absence. And this is something that you did, right? Um, I did, but I actually didn't do it at that point in time. I actually did it a few years later. Oh, okay. And they offered it to you? To uh, that's correct. They had done it uh, once during the financial crisis. And the, um, actually, after about two years into the financial crisis, we started to recover. And so we really thought we were out of the woods. We were picking up routes, we were picking up planes, our schedules were going. Um, but things were about to change. Right. So what happened to change? Was it something internal in the company? Um, it was. Unfortunately, the company had not been profitable since uh, 2001. And um, it finally ran out of money in, uh, in sort of uh, 2011. And I just remember rolling over one morning, picked up my cell phone to check something, and there was a headline, Airline Files for Bankruptcy. Uh-oh. And th Yes. And so this is where you know, the thinking starts going on. I thought I was a year from a captain's spot. Now I'm looking at a bankruptcy. Um, before I could blink, they had furloughed the first 50 pilots. Wow. Yeah. And it happens that quickly. It really does. It Within a week. They, they didn't even stop to analyze it. They just knocked 50 people. Uh, there were people in training at this point in time because up to that point, we thought we were recovering and they were hiring people. So people were furloughed straight out of training, never got a day on the line. And um, unfortunately, they get paid in training, but it's not much. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of them gave up other job options to come and do this. So that was really unfortunate for them. It is. And it, it's difficult, especially in the beginning when you're making no money, then all of a sudden you get furloughed. I mean, that's, you know, that's my story. Six months into the job, I was furloughed after 9-11. Go to another airline. Six months later, I had another airline. You know, it's, it kept going to first year pay. First year pay to, at a regional, even though it's in the 20s now, that's still not very much money. And even with some of the signing bonuses. So to mitigate that, and you know, as most people know, I was a representative for the furloughed pilots at the airline I worked for. I've been through two furloughs as a representative for the folks. And uh, we normally, the, the union, whoever, may uh, negotiate 
to do like a furlough, a COLA, and that's similar to what you right. mean, a, a um, leave of absence, in other words. Right. A long-term leave of absence is what we had done uh, the first time around, and it hadn't really worked out for the company. It actually ended up costing them money, and so they were a little bit hesitant, and the union said, we can negotiate something here that will work better. And so it took them about three months to finally uh, to bang out a plan, and they said, we need 50 people to take a leave for a minimum of a year, maximum of five, and we won't have to furlough anyone. So what's the advantage to you to take that leave of absence? Well, the leave of absence is great if you are looking to do anything else. You know, for any of our pilots who are looking to do other things, this was a good chance to do it and not give up your seniority number. I was sitting there with four and a half years of seniority. Um, I wanted to do other things, but I wasn't willing to give that up and give up a chance at a captaincy in the future. So you keep your seniority. Yes. How about longevity? What happens Everything with builds. longevity? Everything builds yeah. during the time that mm -hmm. you're on leave. Now, that's extremely important for people that don't understand what longevity is. It's how many years you're actually at the company working. If you, ke you keep your seniority list, usually, during any kind of furlough or leave of absence, that, that tells you where you, you hold a spot on the list. But the longevity is for your pay, and that's extremely important and for certain benefits. And so what that means is that if you're on a five-year leave of absence, when you come back, you've accrued five years in longevity. So now you have longevity that gives you more vacation time. It gives you uh, higher vesting. Uh, it gives you more sick time, et cetera. And the pay when you get back will be at that longevity level. So that's an awesome deal. Yes, yeah, so it was really just a phenomenal offer. And I thought the only risk here is that, well, if I take this, I have to be gone for at least a year. But at the time, I was already working on a master's on the side, and I thought I could really use the time to finish this degree and look at other options. And they didn't give me a lot of time to decide. They gave me maybe two weeks and said, we need to know right now, do you want to go? And I said, you know what? i got to take a leap of faith here because this airline could go out of business, or even if they stay in business, it'll be years before I can upgrade to captain. I've got 3,000 hours in the right seat of an airliner. You know, I'm not really gaining anything career-wise. So I said, all right, I'll take this deal. And so I, um, this was probably about yeah, early April 2012. And so I, I went back to Daytona Beach. And I was doing a master's program there with Embry-Riddle. And I went back to my old flight schools, and they put me back on the roster. And I thought, this is not going to pay a lot. What am I going to do? And about three days, four days into this, I'm in the gym, and I get approached by somebody from Embry-Riddle's flight department. It's one of the people I know, one of the head people there. And he says, we need instructors. Come right now, we'll pay for the rest of your master's. Awesome. And I thought, that's great. They pay $20 or just under $20 an hour for somebody at my skill level. Well, it's not airline pay, but it's a lot more than I made as an instructor the first time. Sure. With health benefits and a retirement account. Wow. Which is really unheard of for flight instructing. So yes. yeah. I thought, you know, this is my chance. So I said, okay. And so I interviewed, and um, fortunately, I knew all the people <laughs> that were doing the interview because I'd worked for Embry-Riddle before, so uh, they, they hired me back. And um, I ended up going and working for them for a year uh, while I started to get my other options going. So then you were able to instruct, build time, do something fun, and also you kept your longevity, your seniority, got your master's, and got it paid for. Basically, you turned lemons into lemonade, and I think that's an awesome thing to do. And I think that's what every, this is a, you're a great example of, of what you should do when you're up against this, this great... Uh, you know, furlough, and it's hanging over your head, and you have some adversity in front of you, and you're able to, to, to push through that. So that's awesome that you did that. Uh, and I think you're a good example of what people should do. Uh, but now, you know, we're in 2015 right now, and you've been gone for 
How long? Four <laughs> years? We're coming up on the four-year mark. Uh, March of 2017 is when I'll actually uh, have to be back over there if I'm going to uh, take that option. Uh, but uh, what happened uh, was one of the things I've been thinking about for years was going to law school. I thought I want to do more than just fly airplanes. I want to be involved in designing the systems and the policies that go with uh, airplanes and how we fly them. And so I thought, well, law school is a great way to do it, but you can't go to law school while you're working. So that was really one of my early thoughts when I took this leave was I can go to law school, but I just missed the application window. So uh, it was going to take a year. But fortunately, Ember Riddle was offering to hire me for a year. I had a master's to finish, and I thought, you know what? That gives me enough time to, to get all my applications in and get into a good law school. Interesting. So now you were able to get into the law school that you wanted, I'm assuming. That's correct. I got into the one I wanted to in Florida, which is a very reputable law school. Actually, that's, uh, I forgot to say, that's actually where we are right now, is is across the street from that law school, and we're, we're doing the interview here, which actually isn't very far from, from where... Uh, Aviation Careers podcast is is headquartered, so uh, it's great that we were able to actually get together one on one. We're not doing this over Skype, uh, so now you're another year. You have to get your law degree, so you're going to finish that up. So, what are your plans after that? Uh, well, you know, when I first uh, started on the law degree, I really didn't know if I was going to stay uh, sort of on the law or business side, or if I would go back and fly again. I'm pretty sure now I'm going to go back and fly. Yeah, flying's fun. Um, you know, flying's my first love. And, uh, you know, still young, still single, this is a good opportunity to go and do that. But now I've got, a, you know, an MBA and a law degree. So if I change my mind later and say, you know, I don't want to fly in the future or I only want to fly part time. Now I've got other options. You know, what's interesting. We, we go back to that where we you got furloughed and you were trying to make this decision. The pay in the beginning is interesting. Uh, if you're just got on taking a furlough or leave of absence isn't a big deal. It's one of those jobs where it's really interesting. You, you start off and there's few jobs out there that that pay any less than what you're making. And then 10 to 15 years later, there's few jobs out there that pay any more than you're making. So people say, why is it that I want to do this? And we, we get a lot of these questions uh, as emails. You know, is it worth it? Is it worth waiting that long to get to that pay? And I, for me, I'll answer you yes, because yes, it took a long time to get to that six-figure income. Uh, I think it was like six, seven years till I broke that. And then, of course, into the majors, you're, you know, almost everybody's making that. And uh, it's really worth it. But again, you go from somewhere where, you know, there's few jobs that, that pay any less than flying. And uh, you can, so if you lose your job, you can go out to almost anywhere. You go to McDonald's, you can go wherever and make more money, say, as a man, definitely as a manager at a McDonald's. So there's so many jobs that people took when they, when they got furloughed that made more than, a, than an airline pilot. And it was sad to say that, but the, the issue is that you need the experience. The airlines know it. They're not going to pay you much. They know you're moving on. And, uh, and that sales pitch keeps going round and round and round. It's only now that we're seeing a little bit of a change where the, the salaries have come up slightly and also the signing bonuses. But that's because they're just a huge shortage of pilots, especially on the regional level. Uh, I think so. The regionals have always been seen as sort of the stepping stone uh, into larger carriers, but that's changing. Uh, regional planes now make up over half of all the departures daily in the United States. Uh, so, and the regionals are getting larger planes. We're seeing the Embraer 175 come out. So we're seeing people spending more time at a regional. People aren't just stepping through to a major anymore. What's interesting, too, is there are some people that want to stay with the regionals. And um, when they're making really good money, I mean, you're, say you're making in the you know, 100 to 150,000 a year at a regional as a captain, then you're going to go down to making 40,000 or something at a major for the first year, say 60 or whatever. That's a huge you know, step backwards. But you have to, again, look 
over a period of time, say three to five years, you're going to be doing a lot better than, than you were when you started. So that's important to look at those numbers. Right. You know, in most cases, you're going to be better stepping into the major in the long term. Right. Uh, we saw that with uh, flight instructing. Uh, a lot of people were delaying going from flight instructing to into regional airlines because they were making more money sure. flight instructing uh, than they would at the regional. Uh, but in the long term, you just got to keep the career moving if that's your goal. Yes. Uh, great point. It's not about the money in the beginning. It's, it's all about building experience. Again, the reason the pay is so low in the beginning is that they know that. Uh, flight instructing, though, has become a job. And in my experience, that I made more money instructing than I did in my first four years at the airline. Then, of course, it, it jumped up rather quickly. And there's something that I think, you know, when, when people are listening right now, they're, they're saying to themselves, what is it that, you know, I should do right now? I've got this great paying job, and I hear this all the time, you know, why would I go to the airlines? Well, it's because you're not, if you want to fly an Airbus or a Boeing, you're probably going to need to go to a regional or fly a jet with a corporation somewhere and get that time so you can get into the majors, because otherwise you're probably not going to do it. Even though there's a big shortage amongst the regionals, the majors, what there's there's a little shortage. In other words, they're they're taking their minimums and dropping them, and they're hiring people quicker. But they could take everybody from the regionals, and they'd be able to fill all the spots. So yeah, that's what we're seeing as far as a quote unquote shortage at the majors is is there's a, a lowering of the actual minimums that we see, which is pretty interesting, and people are moving up rather quickly. Also, I hear from people, and uh, maybe you can comment on this also, concerning a lot of flow-throughs. Uh, my experience with flow-throughs, I had one. It disappeared when they sold the company. So uh, I no longer was able to flow through to the major airline that I had. Flow-through agreements are such that when you're on the seniority list, once you reach a certain seniority, you're able to move right over to the major airline. Uh, what is your experience with the flow-throughs? Uh, my experience is they're very temperamental. Um, they're in place, but a flow-through, you might be looking somewhere seven, eight, ten years down the road. And by that point, the industry can change, the economy can change. Um, I'm supposedly on a flow-through now, uh, but we're actually being restricted uh, on that flow-through because we can't lose uh, the pilots that we have. We are so short-staffed or, um, at the airline that I would be working at if I wasn't on the leave, of course. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I'm sure they want me back because they, they're very short-staffed. And so they, they've actually had to slow that flow down until they can get their staffing levels. Um, so I wouldn't tell anyone to bank on flow-through. Go to a regional carrier that you like. Say, this is the company I want to work for. I want these coworkers. And I'm willing to stay here for five, ten, however many years it takes. Uh, we see so many people going to carriers they don't want to work for because they think they're going to get this three or four year captain upgrade, and then they get stuck. And now you're working for less pay or you know, living in a place you don't want to live in. Don't do that. Get the company you want, and then when the next opportunity comes, take it. And that's a good point, by the way. Uh, I, I did that myself, and I absolutely loved my whole career. I loved everything I was doing, but there's people that went to work for, you know, companies and they're just looking at that golden ring to, to grab that and they were miserable people. Uh, there, another person, it's interesting also, it's not just about the money, also it's about location. If there's a regional airline in your backyard, I think you should apply there because you're gonna your whole family is going to be happy, especially if, say, you have children and you're married, etc., and uh, that's always been my advice is look at also where you are. There are there's two types of people out there. There's people that say I'll never commute to a regional job. And then there's people who commute anywhere. I commuted anywhere because I thought it was fun. Uh, I like I like to see different places in the United States and the world. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't want to do that. And so if you're that type of person, make sure you look at their bases too and say, gosh, I'm not so sure I want to go here. Also, if you do go to a regional, give it some time. Um, 
and and make sure you try to wait till you can bid to those bases that you want. Because say you, you may not get the base you want, and, and you might get that base eventually. You got your base right away, right? Um, I did. It was actually the most junior base in the company, so it was um, a little bit <laughs> easier to, a little bit easier base to get. It was. Um, they made me a really good offer. They actually said, we'll put you in any base you want, um, but you won't get to pick your equipment. Uh, but since, because of the base I picked, I did end up on the ATR-72. <laughs> so <laughs> You know, it's funny because the, the base I want to go to, which is the closest to home I can't get to, I'm too junior. It, it's, it's, it's just the way it works out. It happens. Um, you know, most of the time that's a year, maybe two years um, before you um, can get to the base you want. Right. It's so much nicer to live in base. Uh, when I first started the company, I lived right there um, five minutes from the airport. I could just get in the car and, and drive five minutes. became six when they put speed bumps in. On the way into the parking lot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was really convenient because later in my career I did some commuting and it gets tiring. So explain that to us a little bit here. So you were in base. Like most people have a job, they live near their job. In the airline world, you can live anywhere you want, and that's what they consider commuting. In other words, you get in an airplane and you fly to your job. I know most people listening, they understand commuting means you get in your car, you drive to your, to your job. When we say commuting in the airlines, it's usually has to be by airplane. Uh, so your commuting experience, you know, what were some of those challenges? Uh, well, I've done both. I've done it by airplane. I've done it by car. Um, when I left the ATR and went to the jet, um, they put me in a, um, a northern city in the U.S., mm-hmm. and I really didn't want to live there. And uh, so I actually went through about a two-year phase where I didn't live anywhere. I lived out of a suitcase. Um, I worked some overtime at the airline, couch surfed a little bit, went on vacation, went to see family. You know, for a guy in your early 20s, it was a lot of fun. Right. And it was a really good time. Uh, that got old. And so eventually I did get an apartment um, back in Daytona Beach. And then, um, you know, as far as commuting there, it's, it's, it works out pretty well. But you don't always get the efficiency you'd want to get. Right. Now, let's go back to something you said. You, you passed over this. What did you mean by couch surfing? Uh, well, this is this a phase of my life where I said, you know what? It's, I'm home so little. It's cheaper for me to rent a hotel room than it is to own an apartment. And so I actually had no residence for two years, and I had a lot of friends who wanted to see me, friends in Daytona and other places. And so I would call them and say, hey, can I come over for the weekend? And so sure enough, I would you know, catch a flight after work, and I would go visit them. And despite not having an apartment, I did have a car at the Orlando airport. The car lived at the airport. <laughs> Sometimes I put two months worth of stickers in the window. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so it was there, yeah, I think, you know, it's... Uh, People probably thought it was a statue sitting there so long, but uh, <laughs> but you know it was really kind of it was kind of fun. So if I wanted to go see friends, I could just fly in, pick up the car, go see folks, um, and and um, you know people were holding on to some of my stuff, which was kind of nice. Well, that's cool. So and I've done that too. I've lived out of my car, or I've I've always rented rooms, etc. Yeah, the couch surfing to me, uh, I actually at one point had a couch that I rented. And a crash pad. Instead of a bed, I rented the couch and slept mm-hmm. on that couch. It was a heck of a lot cheaper than, than a bed. Uh, talk about saving money. And uh, it actually got a little bit old after a while because I really wasn't there that often. And I, I really used it because uh, I couldn't commute in or commute out. I just sleep on the couch. And people do that actually in the crew room too at the airport. They sleep on the couches. Um, it's been done. Yeah. I'm not going to admit to that, but, <laughs> but people do it. Oh, it, it um, happens all the time. And even at the majors, people do it. Um, sleep in the couch. You know, you see that, especially in the Northeast, um, the hotels are just so expensive that mm-hmm. you see uh, crew members commuting in the night before and then uh, sleeping on a couch. Um, uh, I did have a couch at one point. It was actually in an apartment. I did the same thing. I rented in uh, in a Florida city. I rented a uh, 
uh, well, eventually they got me a bed, but they had a, a two-bedroom apartment with a series of bunk beds. And they were so full, they said, well, we'll rent you the futon now, and we'll move you to a bed when we get an opening. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating, I tell you. You, you. Have you ever done the the hot bunks or hot racks? Or You no? know, I can't bring myself to do a hot bunk. No. Um, I've actually done it for a couple months, and what does that mean? It means that you have a bed that you're not the only one using that bed. Uh, in the in the crash pad I was in, and uh, we, and of course the crash pads are these apartments or houses where they set up all these beds inside and people rent the beds. Well, I actually had this hot bunk, and what it was is you were in that bunk. If the bunk was made, it was yours. But when you left, you had to take all the sheets off and put it into a laundry basket, and they would actually clean it and have it ready for the next person. Oh, that makes sense. I never did a, a straight hot bunk where you had to move your own stuff. Uh, but at one point, briefly, um, I was with a group that had a hotel room, and there were 13 of us at this uh, residence in type hotel room. And uh, the hotel would actually handle some of that. They would actually change out the sheets for us each week. And so that actually did go on for about a month or so, and then um, decided to go back to hotels. So, you know, if you're listening to this right now, this is totally turning you off. <laughs> Try not to commute. You know, it's <laughs> like, I, I really, I, I don't like commuting very much. Uh, I'm fortunate in that I have family in the base where I commute to, so I stay with family. But there's a lot of times I can't go and see my family because they're so far from the airport. I wound up doing the same thing. I do hotel rooms every so often, and that gets a little bit expensive, especially since I'm, I'm based in the New York area right now. Mm. Uh, I did hotels for about six, seven months in Florida. It was a little bit better uh, price-wise, uh, but it can get really expensive if you're on reserve and you have to be near the airport. So uh, I've always been one person that's always lived near where I work. Uh, it didn't work out after I got married, and I'm sure other people can relate to that. Uh, you know, my, my wife wants to stay in one spot, uh, so I'm the one that gets to commute to work, and I appreciate that, and I'm sure other folks appreciate that too. But there are options out there. Uh, if you're wondering about crash pads and you're listening right now, they're not that expensive. You can rent a bunk, usually maybe 200 to $300 a month, depending on what base you're in. Right. I think that's what I was paying. In, in, in a big Florida city, I was paying probably about uh, 230 a month, which wasn't bad. It included a parking spot. They even right. gave me a parking pass, uh, so I could, uh, which was good because at the time I was driving to work. <laughs> You know, the only downside to having a, a top bunk is as you get older, it's a little tougher to get into that bunk, I tell you. It's as you get older and creaky. I, I didn't like my, I had a top bunk for a while. Well, you know, the, the commuting and, and the airlines, it's, it's all part of it. Uh, some people have never commuted. Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. They always have followed the job, and some people have always commuted their whole careers. It takes up a little bit of time. Uh, you know, I have a trip that starts on Wednesday, finishes on Friday. I have to go up on Tuesday. And I don't come back till Saturday because it starts early, finishes late. So I can't commute on either end of that. So I have to go sit in the crash pad, which is okay with me because I'm seeing family. Now, getting back to where, where you're going now with the uh, law degree. We're almost done with the law degree. Uh, we have one more year. One year, and there's a bar exam at the end of that, and then I can breathe again. Then you can breathe again. Yeah, they, uh, and that's very challenging, I'm sure. So uh, through this, you probably don't get much time to fly, do you? Um, not really. I, fl I think I fly about every eight months once <laughs> oh wow um I, I did get to fly a few weekends ago with the gliders which is good um and uh actually last year i did a flight in britain uh, i was oh, cool. uh, there on a study program and uh, had a chance to fly a cherokee and i thought why not so that's uh, cool hopefully i'll be able to do some more flying once uh, once i'm through the bar exam and i can really allocate some time to it so i'm assuming you're going to get yourself back up to speed before you jump back into the airlines absolutely um my arrangement with the airline is that they're going to pay me uh, at, to go to training and put me through their training um but they're going to expect me to be at the same level as anyone else that they were at the very least hiring that day if not better 
so I'm going to go to the local flight school, uh, you know, get the biannual done, get some practice, uh, hopefully, you know, get an IPC as well, get the interim proficiency check, and then and then after that, be able to go back to the airline. Do a little simulator time? Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of simulator time. Yeah, um, and I recommend that. Because it, it's not healthy for me or fair for them for me to come in unprepared and then try to fake it. That's just not... That, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because one of the problems that we had when we brought our furloughed folks back is that they were busting check rides and they were getting fired after being on furlough for six months, six months to two years, you know? And so you're looking at all this time you waited to go back to work and now you don't have the flying skills anymore and you don't make it through training. Uh, that's tough. I mean, the, the cool thing is we were able to arrange for most folks that give them another six months, let them go you know, out and get some training, then come back and try it again. But they had to do a check ride when they came back just to make sure their skills were up to snuff. Well, that's good. I'm glad they could get them back in. I've actually got a, a, quite a bit of a gap, more than six months after the law program. So I'll have a little bit of time there to go ahead and get up to speed. And That's cool. And uh, so that's awesome. Uh, but, you know, so now you get your law degree. You're going to go back to flying, and, and you're probably going to love it. And you're going to say, I'm not going to leave this. But there's so many that. guys. <laughs> yeah, he always says that. He does it again. But, you know, there's, there's so many people out there that, that are doing what you're doing. They're doing other things. I have a friend. He's a, uh, a captain uh, with an airline, and he's a dentist. And so he works as a dentist on his time off. He has a partner. And uh, I have another gentleman that's an attorney, another person who's a home inspector, another person that sells cars, another person that's a nurse, and a, another person that sells something else. But it's, it's amazing how many people do other things besides aviation for one reason. We get so much time off. Uh, my time off, and I'm a little bit different than most. I don't work much because I like to work on this and do my scholarships guide and try to put as many in that guide. So I take a lot of days off a month. With the airline, I usually take... Made the least amount of days is 16. I usually take 19 to 20 days off every month just so that I can get this going here and, and get the scholarships going. Does it make sense financially? No, not at all. But uh, but this is a lot of fun, and, and we're kind of making a difference, I think, in people's lives. Well, you really have to have fun. Um, the, the flying is a lot of fun, but it does get a little bit repetitive after a while. So um, most of the pilots that I worked with had various projects. They had airplane projects or they were uh, doing rental properties. Uh, and it's not really about the money. It's just about doing other stuff. Um, in, a, in a moment of probably bad judgment, I decided to buy an airplane project. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, that one-year project is now into year six. Wow. <laughs> um, but it'll it, do that to you. It really will. Uh, <laughs> but it gave me something to do. And, uh, and you know, putting this plane together and, and uh, managing all the aspects of, of that project. And it's kind of on hold now, of course, because I'm in law school. Right, right. So it's uh, holding up a hanger. It's holding the hanger down. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, gosh, this has been great. I, there's uh, just hearing your story and the fact you're moving forward in your career and all your careers. Uh, but also, I want to hear a little bit about, uh, you know, first of all, advice uh, to people that are thinking about maybe some of the, they'll get furloughed. You know, how would they prepare for that? Um, and, you know, it's really hard to prepare for that. Um, the obvious stuff is, you know, if you can save some money uh, or keep your committed expenses down. Um, we see a lot of people buying houses and cars hoping to have that income. And that's not always the case. So if you can save up a little bit, um, that helps. If you can have a reputation in any other field, um, you know, whether it's uh, law or taxes. Uh, when I first started at the airline, I was afraid I would get furloughed. And so during that gap before I started working, I went to HR Block and I took the training course to work for HR Block preparing taxes, uh -huh. thinking that in a worst case scenario, I could be a tax preparer. And that's, that can be a full-time job. It's $10 an hour or something close to that, but it's, it would at least be something I could do if I needed the income. 
So you should always be ready for a furlough. And in this career, my personal opinion is, you know, because we have a medical we have to pass, you should have more than the average person in your bank account. Uh, most of the, you know, financial advisors tell you have six months. Uh, I usually like to keep a year of expenses uh, in a bank account somewhere, somewhere liquid. It doesn't have to be a bank account, whatever. Somewhere you can get at that money. It's hard to do. Uh, but you, you know, when you start making more money, I think uh, is what you're saying. Don't start spending it. Don't get the big truck. Don't get the big car. Don't buy the big house. Uh, you know, live modestly and save your money. Right. You definitely do, and you definitely want to pay down student loan debt. Uh, we see a lot of people coming into this career with 150, 200 thousand in student loan debt at 10 percent interest. Well, shoot, if you got 10% interest on that, your entire first-year paycheck is just going to pay interest, interest. on your student loans. Uh, so you want to get that paid off, and then that's not something hanging over you if you have to make a, a career change or do something else for a while. Right, and you never know when a furlough is going to happen. You don't. Another I mean, 9-11. We, yeah, I mean, we thought we were doing well. The economy was getting better. We were, we were hiring people up to the day that we went bankrupt. I'm sure there were probably people in the interview that morning <laughs> right. when they just suddenly filed this. Um, and so, yeah, you just never know what's going to happen. Well, this is really cool. I mean, you you truly have taken lemons and turned it into lemonade here, and you've gotten yourself a master's. You were able to instruct. You made some money. Now you're getting your law degree. There's something else that you've done. You've actually, in all your spare time, you decided to, to start a business and write a book and do some lecturing. So tell us a little bit about that <laughs> project. <laughs> uh, well, it, uh, it actually started in 2013 um, after I finished up my uh, – one year with the university, um, they didn't have uh, a need for summer instructors. So I said, all right, um, I'll go ahead and do something different. I'll take off a few months, do a little bit of travel. And then an idea popped in my head. I said, I'm going to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. <laughs> and I thought, I don't want to write about something that everyone's already written on. It's been done. I need something new. And I, I think I hit my head and thought, you know what? I'm going to write a book on holding patterns. Holding patterns. Holding patterns. I have for our holding patterns. And it seems crazy, but the reason I did it is because I felt there was a real lack of literature. There was a lack of writing and books and resources on this topic. And I saw instructors at flight schools teaching this wrong. And I, th and I thought, you know, it's not really their fault. There's nowhere you can look this up. Or if you can, it's so hard to find that, you know, they don't have the time to do that. So I thought if I could just, you know, write up an explanation. And I thought this will be a short book. 79 pages later, it was done. Wow, 79 pages about holding patterns, which it seems like not the most exciting thing in the world, but it's actually really good information. I've seen your presentation on it. You also do presentations uh, from the book, and it's been really good. There's a lot of learning that goes on there. You'd be surprised how much you really don't know about holding patterns, so I highly recommend it. By the way, if you want to get that book, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 89, and we'll have a link to that book for you there. And also all the other things he's doing at his uh, business, 3.8 aviation we'll have a link to that website and keep up with with what you're doing with the lectures the fa safety program and also anything else that you're going to put out any other books on the horizon by the way uh actually working on a uh, one book on holding pattern well actually i've got the holding pattern so i'm working on revising that one to try to uh, improve on that a little bit and also working on a book on logbooks it's sort of like the old seinfeld uh Right. Coffee table book about coffee tables. Right, right. Um, but, <laughs> but there's really, you know, again, there's a lack of literature from the FAA about how they want logbooks maintained. And I've talked to people in the industry, and there's just there's very, very big gaps. So I'm going to try to 
uh, try to sort of streamline a lot of that and get sort of a standard uh, procedure going. Right, right. It's a, and it's a huge project. You don't realize how much is there. You know, you know, you don't know how little you know about something until you start writing a book. Oh my gosh, that's for sure. Especially when we started this aerospace scholarships guide, it's like, hey, let's just put a guide together. What could go wrong? And and now it takes up you know sometimes five to ten hours of our day just looking up scholarships. It really does. It's a huge amount of research. I've gone. I've done some interviews. And I maybe have a third of a book at this point, but um, you know, I want to make sure the information is right, and that just takes a lot of time to verify. Right. Well, gosh, you know, Chris, we could talk forever, and I, and hopefully, we'll have you on again at some point. Uh, but our hour is up. Uh, can you imagine that? Talking aviation, we could talk for hours, of course. Is there anything else you want to tell the listeners uh, about their career, and uh, as far as getting ready for a furlough, or f- maybe psychologically being ready for it? Uh, well, you know, the furlough is going to happen, and I think you just have to expect that. Uh, the people that had the most trouble uh, at the company I work for were the people that were always fighting the flow. They didn't like the base. They didn't like the schedules. They didn't, and it was, they were always hoping this will get better, this will get better. Unfortunately, you just have to go with the flow. You're, you're not going to get to pick everything. I, uh, when I went to the jet, I said, I don't want to live here, but I want to travel. So I did the, the two years without a residence, and I really enjoyed that. If I had been just commuting to and from, you know, I never was spending time at home. I spent all my time commuting. Right. So um, really just going with the flow and just enjoying where you're at in your career. I think enjoying the journey is very important. We always tell people that, you know, enjoy where you are. Enjoy the journey. It's really important, especially in a, a career that's, that is difficult. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's not overly complex, but it's somewhat difficult. It's because there's so many different obstacles in the way, and, and you have to be able to not let people get you down, and you have to be able to pick yourself up and move forward. And hopefully listening to this does that. Hopefully listening to this podcast will do that for you. Chris Pazala, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate that. Three Point Aviation. Also go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 89 to go look at his book about holding patterns and of course we'll have more links uh, to the other books that he writes by the way the scholarship of the week this week uh, is the aero club of pennsylvania they have a pre-solo scholarship they actually have multiple pre-solo scholarships and uh, this is for people that have not yet begun to do flight training and of course it's uh, for resident legal or illegal alien they uh, reside in the philadelphia or greater delaware valley area and uh, these scholarships are anywhere from one thousand to two thousand and five hundred dollars and it's a pre-solo scholarship check it out aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 89 also like i mentioned in the beginning all that stuff that you used to have to register for it's all free the way you find out is go to the members tab and I have two sections. There's the free stuff and then there's the stuff you, you need to pay for. And the membership, if you do pay for it, it's $10 for a month's access. And that month access will get you the Aerospace Scholarships Guide. It also gets some other downloads that are out there and all the different seminars and webinars we've done. Plus you have the Practical Guide to Winter Flying and the Pilot Jobs Book. So we have, and some more uh, seminars that we're putting out there. But as far as the free stuff, it's going to be the first video of every series. So if you want to check out the first video, go for it. Go check it out. Well, folks, I, I always tell everybody that before we leave, the first thing you need to do is take a step forward. And you have to do something. Move forward in your career today. Do something now. Whether you're driving in the car or you're flying in an airplane, do something. Think about something you want to do to move forward in your career. So I want to challenge you with one thing to do. Think about being furloughed and what we talked about here. Think about this. Today, start planning on your future by preparing for your first furlough. What are you doing? Do you have a financial plan in place? If not, start now and do this. Make your plan today. Make your plan to move forward in your career. And guys, I really hope 
that you will move forward, and I really know that you can do it. This is Carl Valeri, Aviation Careers Podcast. We'll talk to you next episode and safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.